On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Glad to have you listening in to an emergency Monday podcast Some big news on the Seahawks coaching staff that I'm going to be diving into in a moment. Everything isn't going to be status quo heading into the 2022 offseason. When you go 7-10, and you expect there's going to be some dominoes that fall, and that's just exactly what's happening in the Pacific Northwest. So I'll be detailing that big move here in a moment. Also going to be looking back at this Super Wildcard Weekend, the six games that took place across the NFL, maybe some performances from some former Seahawks mixed in there, and continuing our postseason awards with Defensive Player of the Year. As always, Thanks for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Now for your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks. Pete Carroll will be back on the sidelines for a 13th season with the Seahawks in 2022, but there's going to be a bit of a shakeup on his coaching staff on the defensive side of the football. According to Bob Condota and Adam Jude of the Seattle Times, the Seahawks are expected to part ways with defensive coordinator Ken Norton Jr. as well as passing game coordinator Andre Curtis. Not necessarily surprising moves as I've talked about a bit on this podcast. I thought that Ken Norton Jr. did enough that if Pete Carroll was going to be returning, that he would also be back for another season. The Seahawks did finish 11th in scoring defense. They were in the top 10 for a decent chunk of the season. This was a respectable defense, not elite, but they were respectable. There was a while where they were kind of going after that elite tag a little bit. The middle of the season were playing really sound football, but weren't quite able to get over the hump. And this is a team that, as they've done year in, year out under Ken Dorton Jr., they struggled to stop teams from moving the ball freely up and down the field. They finished 28th in yards allowed per game. They gave up the second most yards per game in franchise history. Only the 2001 team gave up more. They also finished 25th in turnovers this year, which was a departure from Norton's first three seasons as defensive coordinator. The Seahawks were actually pretty darn good at creating turnovers. That was one of the things that helped save them despite all the yardage they gave up throughout Norton's tenure as the play caller is their ability to create turnovers. They didn't do that this year, and they didn't have a great pass rush, and yet they found ways to limit teams in the red zone. They were one of the most efficient teams in red zone defense and goal-to-go defense. They were second in the league in that category. So bend but don't break, that really was the Seahawks' defensive philosophy, and they lived by it this season. Unfortunately, that's not enough for Ken Norton Jr. to keep his job. Something had to change. If Pete Carroll's not going to be leaving his head coach, if Shane Waldron's going to be your offensive coordinator and you're not one and done, they had to do something being 7-10. and 10. It's very hard to sell the fan base that – Things are going to be better the next season if you don't do something with your coaching staff. So who knows how much pressure was put on Pete Carroll by owner Jody Allen when he and John Schneider met with her earlier this week. Who knows if that played a role in this decision. But Ken Norton Jr., who's been on Pete Carroll's staff dating back to his time at USC, he was a linebacker coach for five years for Seattle before leaving for three seasons to be the defensive coordinator of the Raiders, came back as the Seahawks defensive coordinator in 2018 Those two have a long history together, and they respect each other, but I'm sure this is one of those business decisions that Pete Carroll knew he needed to make a change. Now the big question is going to be who replaces him, and at this point, 
There are a few favorites. From what I've been told, Clint Hurt, the defensive line coach for the Seahawks, he's been with the team since 2017. They are leaning heavily towards elevating him to become the defensive coordinator. And that's interesting on a number of fronts. For one thing, Clint Hurt has never been a defensive coordinator at any level. Now, he's been involved with the play calling process ever since he's been in Seattle with the defensive line, but this would be a big leap to a position that he has not had before. Now, this is Pete Carroll's defense. We know Pete Carroll has involvement in the play calling. So who knows how much or how difficult this is going to be in terms of a jump for somebody like Clint Hurt that has not held that position before he's been an assistant head coach. So I would think that it wouldn't be that big of a leap for him considering his other work experience, but still he's never been a play caller, but he's been linked to the university of Miami recently by an ESPN report to be their defensive coordinator. And that's his alma mater. So from what I've been told, that was something he was certainly interested in. And Pete Carroll wanted to keep her in town, a very popular assistant coach that's beloved by players, a very good position coach that's done great work with, Defensive tackles such as Puna Ford, who was undrafted, Brian Monet, undrafted, brought in Al Woods at 34, coming off a year that he didn't play and sat out. It just doesn't seem like it matters who they brought in defensive tackle. He's been able to coach them up, and that's been a really good group. They were one of the best run defenses in the NFL for a second straight year. A big part of that has been Clint Hurt. So when you consider those factors, they wanted to keep him around. The fact that he has been an assistant head coach, he's been the defensive line coach in Seattle since 2017, I think that that's going to play a big role in what ultimately happens here. So right now, he's probably the favorite. Ed Donatel, who's still listed as defensive coordinator for the Broncos, is going to be available as well with Vic Fangio, the head coach, being fired. Donatel was the defensive coordinator for Pete Carroll in his lone season with the Jets. They also were together at the University of Pacific in the early 80s, so that is a relationship that dates back several decades. It's possible Donatel could be considered for this defensive coordinator spot as well. Gus Bradley, former Seahawks coordinator, might be available. Going to have more opportunities to dive into potential names that could replace Ken Norton Jr. here in the near future with Rob Rang once he returns to the podcast. We'll be able to dive into a bunch of those names. But the other thing that I have been told is that with a quarter of the league needing head coaches and working on figuring that out right now, the Seahawks are most likely going to wait until the dust settles in that regard, see which coaches are still out there before they move forward. They're not going to quickly elevate her into that defensive coordinator position without taking a look at some outside candidates. And so not a slam dunk that it's going to be Hurts' job, but from what I've been told right now, there's a decent chance that he could be the replacement for Ken Norton Jr. Keep in-house promote a coach that Pete Carroll has enjoyed working with, has seen a lot of growth from, has been the assistant head coach for the last couple seasons. So right now that seems like the natural move to make, but there certainly will consider some other outside candidates. As for the passing game coordinator position, I would expect Deshaun Shedd, former DB for the Seahawks, just joined the staff this last season. I would think that that is going to be the move there. They're just going to elevate him. He's really impressed Pete Carroll in his lone season as an assistant defensive backs coach. He had a couple games where he had to move up and actually be the passing game coordinator for the Seahawks when Curtis was out due to COVID protocols. So he's already had a little bit of a crash course experience with that. Players love him. You can see it in the field. Obviously, his experience playing in this defense for a number of years for Pete Carroll underneath defensive coordinators, Dan Quinn 
and Chris Richard. So he brings all of that invaluable experience to the table, was a really good player in his own right that started a number of games for the Seahawks at two different positions, versatile. So he can coach all of those spots. So I think that's the natural fit there. I'd be surprised if they go to the outside to bring in a defensive backs coach. I would expect that he's going to be the natural fit there. But the defensive coordinator position, that one's more up in the air. Again, Hurt being the favorite at this point. They're going to look at people like Donatel. There will be some other assistants out there that are worth looking at. Former head coaches, that hasn't been Pete Carroll's MO over the years. He hasn't really gone that route, but maybe he changes after a 7-10 and 10 season and maybe somebody like Mike Zimmer remains available and he wants to coach this next year. Maybe Pete Carroll makes the move to bring in another former head coach to be defensive coordinator. Don't know if that's something he's interested in, but there's a number of dominoes that could fall here. Nonetheless, Pete Carroll's staff is going to look different on the defensive side of the football next season. Ken Norton Jr. out after four seasons as coordinator. Andre Curtis out after four seasons as the passing game coordinator. We'll continue to dive into that on our Tuesday episode. We start looking at more candidates who could potentially replace both of those positions. Coming up in the second quarter, I'm going to be continuing my postseason awards, shifting to the Defensive Player of the Year. We've looked at MVP and Offensive Player of the Year up to this point. This seems like it might be a slam dunk, but there are a number of candidates that are worth considering for this, especially because the defense, as I said, did finish 11th in scoring last year. A number of players had really strong seasons for the Seahawks. It's the new year, so that means New Year's resolutions. If yours is about getting fit or eating healthier, make sure you include the Built Bar in your plan. Built Bar is the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar, maybe even better than a candy bar. Built Bar makes it easier to stick to your resolution because it tastes so good you'll want to eat it, unlike other protein bars that can be chalky or waxy or taste like a chemical spill. You want to eat healthy, but sometimes it just gets boring. Trust me, by like week three, you might be thinking, this just isn't worth it. Where's the chocolate? You don't have to worry about that problem with Built Bars. They're covered in 100% real chocolate and have just 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. You compare that to a candy bar that has 240 calories, 30 grams of sugar, and dozens of net carbs. Even if you're not a huge fan of working out, you can at least eat something that tastes good and is good for you. That way, when you enjoy a delicious Built Bar, you can almost count it as a workout. And there's so many delicious flavors. Trust me, I have a hard time picking which ones I want. So many delicious flavors. Peanut butter brownie, raspberry, cookies and cream, salted caramel, mint brownie. And Built's coming out with new limited time flavors all the time. So make sure to check out Built.com often to see what's new. Go to Built.com and use the promo code LOCK15 and you'll get 15% off your order. That's LOCK15 for 15% off at Built.com. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Monday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Thanks, as always, for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Continuing our postseason awards, have already looked at most valuable player, handed that one out to Quandre Diggs. And Offensive Player of the Year, I maybe pulled a little bit of an upset by going with Rashad Penny for that, just based on how excellent he was over the final five games of the season. The best running back in the NFL really ignited the offense. Now let's talk Defensive Player of the Year. Now naturally, most of you that are listening to the show are probably thinking, well, we already know the answer to this one. If Quandre Diggs was the most valuable player, then he's got to be Defensive Player of the Year. But there have been plenty of times in the NFL where the MVP and Offensive Player of the Year have not been the same player. Or if the MVP was a defensive player, 
defensive player of the year might not be the same player because most valuable player has different meaning to different voters. It might not just be all about that player's stats. There might be other intangibles that are including are included when you're talking about who is most valuable. Defensive player of the year, you're talking outright, this is the best defensive player on the Seahawks this year. Now, you can make a lot of arguments for Quandre Diggs, and I'm going to here briefly, a player we've talked about a lot, but led the team with five interceptions this year had 94 tackles, which was third on the team behind only Bobby Wagner and Jordan Brooks, who each had about a billion tackles apiece this year, but almost 100 tackles for the first time in his career. That's not necessarily a great thing when you're talking safeties. Some of that is playing a 17th game. Some of it's just all the plays the Seahawks had on defense, but nonetheless, an effective tackler. You don't see teams trying to test the Seahawks with post routes and seam routes very often. The big reason for that his digs is just a ball hawk playing center field in Pete Carroll's scheme. He's been outstanding ever since they traded for him midway through the 2019 season. He does a little bit of everything, a very versatile player. He showed in week 18 before he got hurt that he can play in the box some. He's played slack corner. You can move him all over the place. He's just a football player. So from a production standpoint and consistency standpoint, Quandre Diggs had an outstanding season. There's a reason that I picked him as my MVP candidate, but there are other players in this defense that had really good seasons. And I want to stay in the secondary for my second player. DJ Reed started the year off kind of rough. For whatever reason, playing on the left side just wasn't clicking for him. He played on the right side end of the 2020 season and excelled there. So in week four, Pete Carroll decided it's time to move him back. Trey Flowers gets benched. They put Sidney Jones into the lineup. DJ Reed slides back to right cornerback from there. I don't know if you want to call him a shutdown corner, but if that's not the word, he's he's very close to being in that category because from there on, week four to week 18, he played in 12 games during that span, and he gave up less than 50% completion rate, lower than a 50 passer rating to opposing quarterbacks, no touchdowns, had two picks, had six pass breakups during that span, racked up a bunch of tackles, just the complete package, and he really has shown Pete Carroll and his staff that we don't need to have a six-foot-three long-arm corner on the outside to be successful. He has been able to get by with his quickness and his physicality and his technique, and he's shown some ball skills. Even though he didn't have an interception until Week 17, he was able to get his hands on a lot of footballs this year for the Seahawks and just does a really good job mirroring receivers in coverage and staying on their hips. Doesn't get a ton of penalties either, despite his physical play. I thought DJ Reed was fantastic for most of the season. So he definitely deserves consideration. Not giving up a touchdown in his last 12 games in coverage, he was fantastic. They've been looking for that type of consistency and reliability at the corner position, really since Richard Sherman left after the 2017 season. So you got those two guys in the secondary. Now let's go to linebacker. I think you can make an argument for both of Seattle's star linebackers, both who received all-pro votes. Bobby Wagner, a second-team all-pro. Jordan Brooks got one vote, the first all-pro vote in his career after his sophomore season. Brooks finished with 184 tackles to lead the NFL. He led the Seahawks with 10 tackles for a loss. He had nine pressures on just 56 blitz attempts, so he was effective at pressuring quarterbacks in the few times the Seahawks sent him as an extra blitzer. And he also had four pass breakups. So he showed some progress in coverage. Still gave up over 1,000 yards 
in coverage, according to Pro Football Focus. I sometimes dispute the numbers they come up with as far as who's to blame for allowing receptions, so we'll leave it at that. But he did give up some big plays this year. He gave up seven touchdowns in coverage. A number of those were really great throws where he was in pretty good position. It feels like just if he was a hair quicker recognizing plays, he might have been able to get his hand on the football or even get an interception. So that's what to be excited about. I did see progression from him. You saw him do a better job as the season progressed, reacting and recognizing screens. He blew up a number of running back screens late in the season. Looked like he'd been studying up some K.J. Wright film. Maybe he finally talked to K.J. Wright. He said he was going to, but... I saw a player that really had a lot of growth this past season, yet there's still so much room for him to grow. I think Jordan Brooks can be like Bobby Wagner in the sense that he could be a player that is a perennial all-pro. He has that kind of talent, the pursuit sideline to sideline that Wagner used to have early in his career. Jordan Brooks mirrors that. A fantastic athlete that's always around the football, a very sound tackler, did leave some tackles on the field at times, but overall, He doesn't miss very many of them. He's in the area. He's going to bring the ball carrier down. You're seeing improvements in coverage, and I feel like that is the area of his game. He still has the most room that he can grow, and I expect that he will. Year three could truly be the season we see him take off, but he still had a fantastic second season. And Bobby Wagner had 170 tackles, and really he played 15 games. Injured his knee the first defensive play in week 17 against Detroit. Didn't play the rest of that game. Sat out season finale in Arizona with a knee sprain. So two whole games distanced him from Jordan Brooks. And that's why Brooks was able to break his single season franchise tackles record that Wagner had broken his own record for only a few weeks earlier. From a tackle standpoint, you can cluster Bobby Wagner in here, but I don't think it was his best season in the NFL, not even close. And I'm not surprised that he was only a second team all pro. I don't know that he would have deserved a first team all pro selection. And the big reason why I just don't feel like the other impact plays have been there. You only got one sack from him this year. You got an interception, which was more than what he had the year before, but still just one interception. He got his hand on a few footballs, but not a ton of pass breakups, not a lot of forced fumbles or fumble recoveries. The plays aside from making tackles just weren't there. He only had three tackles for a loss. And in his career, that's been something that he usually has a much larger number for. So Yes, he's made a lot of tackles, but a lot of them were after the catch. A lot of them in the run game were several yards downfield. It wasn't the same type of production for Bobby Wagner. And that's not to say he didn't have a good season because he certainly did. He made some big plays for the Seahawks, but I can't give him defensive player of the year because of the lack of impact plays away from simply racking up tackles. They weren't there. One other name I want to throw out here real quick. He's not going to win this award, but I at least got to give him consideration because If Jordan Brooks and Bobby Wagner, and they've said this publicly, if they want to mention who to thank for all the tackles they've racked up, there's a couple things. They could thank the offense for not picking up third downs and constantly throwing the defense back in the field and having to play so much to get those tackles. But it's also Al Woods coming back after sitting out the 2020 season due to COVID. He's 34. Nobody knows what he has left in the tank. And he had the best season of his career. 50 tackles. He takes up space, keeps the linebackers free. He was living in the backfield. This is a guy that's country strong. He had his best year as an interior pass rusher, too. A career high in quarterback hits, was able to get one and a half sacks. I just thought Al Woods had a fantastic season. Not defensive player of the year worthy, especially the position he plays, but he deserves that recognition 
So looking at the five names I threw out there, I think you can make strong arguments for a number of them. I think the first three, when you're talking Quandre Diggs, DJ Reed, as well as Jordan Brooks, those three to me have the strongest cases when you look at the stat, look at the stats, look at the way they played on the field film-wise. But this is going to be one of those cases. MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, has got to be the same player. From week one to week 18, the most consistent playmaker on the Seahawks defense was Quandre Diggs. The ability to generate interceptions. He picked off Matt Stafford twice. Welcome to the NFC West, former teammate. Had those two interceptions. He's picked off all the starting quarterbacks in the division. Big play after big play. Teams just don't get those posts and seam routes against the Seahawks either. They find their ways to get yardage, but 99% of the time it's not because of number six. He typically is taking away some of their options because he's so darn good in the back half of their defense, and they've used him in a number of different ways. This one is one of those rare instances. You know, I, I could see the argument for DJ Reed or Jordan Brooks. They certainly played well this year, did some really nice things. But all in all, from start to finish this season, nobody was more consistent at making plays for the Seahawks than Quandre Diggs. So it seems like a pretty big home run here to have him be MVP as well as Defensive Player of the Year. Just can't make enough of an argument for the others here to vote for anyone else. We're going to shift away from the Seahawks here for a moment, going to the Playoff action this weekend, super wild card weekend, kind of an underwhelming weekend with a number of blowouts, but I'm going to share a few thoughts from each game here before we move on to further Seahawks coverage the rest of this week. Looking forward to diving in on a few other teams and maybe talking about a few other Seahawks, former Seahawks, and what I observed in those playoff games. Bet Online would like to wish you a happy new betting year as we continue our march to the playoffs and beyond. Bet Online remains the top spot for all the best sports wagering action for 2022, a new year with a new updated desktop and mobile website. So sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use the promo code locked on to get started from football, basketball, hockey, boxing, and UFC right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for 2022. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports. Bet online where the game starts. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Monday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. As always, thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. A pretty big day in the Pacific Northwest with the Seahawks making a coaching change. Ken Norton Jr. out as defensive coordinator as well as Andre Curtis as passing game coordinator. On tomorrow's show, Rob Rang and I are going to dive into some potential candidates to replace those two coaches on Pete Carroll's staff. But before we get to that, let's talk wild card action. And no, the Seahawks were not playing this weekend, failed to make the playoffs for the first time since 2017. But there were a number of former Seahawks were able to play in these games. And quite frankly, in the playoffs, there were some compelling matchups going into this weekend. I thought it was one of the more underwhelming wild card weekends that we've seen, though. And I think it begs the question. Should there really be a seventh playoff team in both conferences? Yes, it generates more money for the league. And yes, they're going to keep this format regardless. But we saw last year the Chicago Bears being an 8-8 eight and eight team, getting a wild card, and the Saints outclassed. It really wasn't a game in that first weekend. You only get one by the two seed in both conferences looking dominant in, this, in the games this weekend. They probably could have just had that bye week, and there should be two byes like there always were. I think you can make that argument. Again, they're not going to change back 
If anything, they'll add another playoff team just because there's more revenue there. But it certainly was a watered-down product. That being said, there were a few things that stood out to me in every game. I want to start with the Bengals and Raiders, which is the first playoff game. This was probably my favorite to watch. And I know there are some of you listening that will probably be like, well, there was a game in the NFC that went down to the wire. This, to me, was the best game in terms of game management. Both teams playing well. A bit of a defensive matchup at times. The Raiders not quite able to get the job done. They were in the red zone, had several chances to tie this football game up, but the Bengals were able to get an interception on the final play of the game to turn Derek Carr and company away. Joe Burrow with a big game, made a couple big-time throws. This game wasn't without controversy, obviously. The blown whistle scandal, that's supposed to blow the play dead. I get that, but with when it was blown, I guess it's one of those things where I understand the rules and it's what should have been called, but I don't think that that whistle really affected the outcome there at all. Joe Burrow was going to get the ball to his receiver there. Boyd was open. I don't think that the safety that was there was impacted by that whistle to the point that it would have stopped that from happening. So I get why fans are upset, but at the end of the day, it was going to be a touchdown pass. And I'm not sure why they blew the whistle. It didn't even look like it was close to Joe Burrow being out of bounds. But I digress. I thought that was a good game. And one former Seahawk of note, Trey Flowers, former corner that started the season for the Seahawks as their starting corner on the right side. He was being used in their nickel and dime packages going against big tight end Darren Waller. He got beat a few times, but he also had a couple nice plays in coverage, had a pass breakup against Darren Waller. So it seemed like it wasn't necessarily a bad role for him going up against the big body Waller where he didn't have to worry as much on the outside going against speedier, uh, speedier, quicker receivers. Seemed like it was an okay matchup that ended up working out okay. Waller had a fairly decent day, but Trey Flowers wasn't the only one that was in coverage against him. I thought he made a few decent plays. Now, in another AFC game, I'm just going to say this right now, nothing shocked me more this weekend than what the Buffalo Bills did to the New England Patriots. With it being single-digit weather, I thought this was going to be a defensive slugfest, similar to the one these teams played earlier this year, where Mac Jones threw the ball three times for the Patriots and they won. But there wasn't the wind this time around. The wind was not the factor. It was just really cold. And I'll tell you one guy that was not cooled off by the weather, and that was Josh Allen. Five touchdown passes. That might have been the most impressive display I've seen by a quarterback. When you consider the weather going out there and slinging five touchdowns, and that was the most perfect offensive game you're going to see. The Bills scored a touchdown on every single one of their drives until they took a knee with Mitch Trubisky coming into the game at the end of the game. They scored every other drive just incredibly efficient, maybe once in a lifetime efficient efficiency that we saw from Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills offense. And Bill Belichick and the Patriots just did not have an answer on this particular day. So Bills move on with a blowout win. That stunned me. I thought that for sure was going to be a close game. New England being such a great defense, usually they just couldn't slow down Josh Allen, who was dropping dimes all night long sticking with the early games i'm gonna i'm gonna slip over the first matchup that had an nfc west team san francisco 49ers against the dallas cowboys now this is a game that was generating all kind of buzz yesterday because of questionable coaching decisions and and i think you're gonna look at both sides for this but mainly the dallas cowboys in the second half the first thing that jumps out and i tweeted this I got to wonder if Mike McCarthy was just holding on to the Y button like he was playing Madden after they converted a fake punt pass. Why would you keep your punt team on the field on first down 
and think that that's going to make the 49ers call a timeout. I mean, Kyle Shanahan would be sitting over there like, well, this is great. They've got their punter and their punt team out there on first down. That means Dak Prescott and CeeDee Lamb and those guys are not out there. They're not going to call a timeout. They're, they're hoping you're dumb enough to call a play. So that blew my mind. And then inside a minute to play, the 49ers should have had an easy QB sneak to seal the game. They have a false start. That gives the Cowboys life 32 seconds to drive the field with no timeouts. And they did a good job early in the drive. They worked the sidelines in a couple of plays. They got past midfield. They were in position where they could have thrown a Hail Mary. They maybe could have got one more play where they worked the sidelines. But you only had 14 seconds left. And they decided to run a quarterback draw. I, For the life of me, just cannot figure out why you would call that. But Dak Prescott, if he would have went down a little bit earlier – and if he would have got the football to the official right away, instead of trying to spot it himself with the center, we might be having a little different conversation. But ultimately, the clock ran out. Not the official's fault. you got to give him the football in 14 seconds. That's just not enough time. With the play that they called there, the Cowboys deserve to lose. With the clock management gaffes, with what they did with the punt team, there were some questionable decisions that happened earlier in the game. It's a bad mark on Mike McCarthy, who's had issues with game management throughout his coaching career, dating back to his time in Green Bay. That's always been a knock on him, and they came out flat. And The 49ers raced out to a nice little lead in the first half, and the Cowboys just didn't seem to wake up. And late in the game, they tried to mount a furious rally, but it proved to be too little too late. The 49ers got their run game going early, so kudos to San Francisco, a team that Seattle beat both times this year. They're advancing to the divisional round in part because Dallas just did not take care of business. Very undisciplined, not necessarily a fun game to watch until the end with just how crazy that final minute was, but kind of a sloppy game for both sides. Continuing in the NFC, I picked the Eagles to beat the Buccaneers and that simply did not work out. Tom Brady, I got to stop doubting you. Even if you have receivers that, our minor league caliber receivers out there. He's still got Mike Evans, one of the best receivers in the NFL, working the Eagles. And really, Jalen Hurts was the problem for the Eagles in this game. He did not play well. He missed a number of throws, two turnovers. They had a couple drives end of the first half that looked promising and got no points out of them. That came back to haunt him. Score ended up looking like it was kind of a competitive game, but it was 31-0 before the Eagles got 15 points to close out the game. This game was never in doubt. Tampa Bay controlled from the outset, and so the defending champs are going to be heading to Green Bay for the divisional round, and they're going to be going to Lambeau with a bit of momentum after getting this win over the Eagles. It was a good year for Philadelphia, somewhat surprising they got to the playoffs, a team that was supposed to be rebuilding. A lot of people thought a top-five pick, so kudos to them for that, but they came out flat in this game. I thought they would give a better fight than that, especially after giving Tampa Bay fits in the regular season. That just did not happen. Looking at the last two games that happened most recently, last night, the Chiefs and Steelers, not a lot of analysis for that game. The Chiefs just destroyed the Steelers, and that's what I expected to happen. Ben Roethlisberger and his noodle arm, they couldn't move the football downfield, and the Chiefs were able to get a bunch of points in real quick fashion. This game was close for about a quarter and a half, and I thought that might happen going in this game. Maybe that the Steelers would give them a little bit of fight uh, but in the end, the talent discrepancy at the quarterback position, way too much to overcome. Patrick Mahomes had way too much time in the pocket. He was extending plays and making those incredible throws in the run that he's so known for. And so 
once this game started to slip out of hand end of the second quarter and then a flurry with 14 points early in the third quarter, it's game over. There's no way the Steelers can come back. So game played out about how I expected it to. A few defensive turnovers for the Steelers kept them in the game early. Once those stopped happening, though, it was all Kansas City. And so they're heading back to the divisional round for yet another season. And then tonight's game, Rams and Cardinals. I thought the Cardinals would play the Rams tougher than this, too. They beat them early in the season. But this Cardinals offense without DeAndre Hopkins is so difficult to watch. Just Obviously, one of the best receivers in football. But him not being out there just changes the complexion of this offense completely. The Rams came out, got two quick touchdowns to go up 14-0. Ended up getting a 28-0 advantage in the third quarter before the Cardinals finally scored. And made it 28 to 8. It was way too little, way too late for them. But makes me wonder what Cliff Kingsbury's job status looks like. I'll be surprised if the Cardinals move on from him because he's improved his record each season he's been in Arizona. But they lost five of their last six games, including their season finale to the Seahawks at home. This team has really been a wounded bird for the last month and a half. They have not been playing good football, particularly in the offensive side of the ball. Haven't been scoring points. Kyler Murray had a couple really ugly interceptions in this game. So got to wonder what that means for the future because Cliff Kingsbury had the same thing happen last year and it cost the Cardinals for making the playoffs. They had a really rough second half, fell apart. They unraveled. Same thing happened this year. And luckily they started the year 7-0. and If not for that, they might not have made the postseason this year. That's how bad they were the last month and a half. So an ugly finish to what was at one point an outstanding season for the Arizona Cardinals. And for the Rams, Matthew Stafford finally gets his first playoff win. Congratulations to him. If they play the way they did tonight, they've got a chance to get through the NFC and go to the Super Bowl. Obviously, they're going to have to play in Lambeau most likely. But if Tampa Bay can pull the upset, then the Rams potentially can get themselves a home game in the NFC Championship game. So there are some moving parts here. The Rams getting to the divisional round for a second straight year. This time they're hoping to get to the NFC Championship game for the first time since 2017, the year they lost to the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. Again, congratulations to the Rams. Get two teams in the NFC West moving on to the divisional round. We'll see how many of them advance, if any, to the NFC Championship. As always, thanks for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Now make your second listen Locked on Bets, your daily one-stop shop for all your gambling needs. Locked on Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. You can follow me on Twitter at CorbinSmithNFL. Coming up on tomorrow's episode, I'll be rejoined by Rob Rang, as I've mentioned a few times earlier in the show. Looking forward to starting to dive into some potential defensive coordinator candidates to replace Ken Norton Jr., who is out in Seattle. So Rob and I will be diving into some of those candidates, maybe breaking down which ones we think are the best fits going into the 2022 season. And we're going to be continuing our players of the year going to the third phase, special teams player of the year. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening in. Go Hawks.